0: Thank you very much uh, for reading for us, Um, and thank you too for your welcome. It's a great joy to be here and to share this weekend with you all, and uh, I trust that as we adventure into this great book of Isaiah, it will be uh, a real help and stimulus to us in our own Christian lives. I've called this series Meeting Jesus in Isaiah uh, because uh, he is the centre of all the scriptures, and especially in this book, which was written 700 years before he came into the world, there are so many amazing prophecies and pictures um, about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, uh, we're going to uh, go on a little journey through Isaiah. Obviously, we can only take a, a sort of bird's eye view of one or two passages. But my prayer is that not only will we see Christ freshly in this book, but that we will also be able to... Um, really get a feel for Isaiah and perhaps do some exploring for ourselves because it is a great book which will, um, in many ways, repay any time that you are able to spend uh, in studying it. Now, uh, if you've got the outline there, you'll see that uh, in each of the sessions I've done a little bit of work at the beginning on the context because, especially uh, taking a passage like the one we've just read, it's easy to sort of imagine that it somehow dropped out of heaven without any context but once you set the text in the context you understand the meaning and the implication of the text much more. So what I want to do in this first talk is spend uh, roughly half the time on just familiarising ourselves with Isaiah with the big picture of what he's doing in his book and uh, with the way ahead that God um, is, uh, is giving to him and to his people if they respond to his word. Now Christ is the centre of all the scriptures, that we know because the whole Old Testament is pointing forward to that great event when Jesus comes and transforms everything by his incarnation, by his death and his resurrection. And Jesus himself told the disciples that. If you look up those verses in Luke 24, it's the couple on the road to Emmaus and Jesus says to them, you're very slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to Christ. And especially later in uh, Luke 24, the second reference there, verses 44. We won't look them up now, but you can look them up sometime, 44 to 48. You find that Jesus meets, uh, this is the risen Jesus after the cross, meets with his disciples. And he instructs them about how all the scriptures speak of him. He says the law, the prophets and the writings, they all speak of him. And those were the division that the Jews had of the Old Testament scriptures, the laws, the first five books, then the prophets, then the writings, all the other books like Psalms. And Jesus says, they're all telling, talking about me. They're all presenting pictures of me. And he opened their eyes and he opened their ears and he opened their hearts so that they would understand the scriptures. And I think what was happening between the resurrection and the ascension in those 40 days was actually a Bible school that Jesus was conducting with the disciples, telling them how to use the Old Testament in this new world that he had brought about through his work on the cross and through his glorious resurrection. So when he said in John 5, you search the scriptures, but you won't come to me, what he was saying to the Pharisees there was that um, even though uh, they were people who were meticulous in their reading of the Old Testament scriptures, when Christ himself appeared, they wouldn't come to Christ uh, because they were not willing uh, to submit to him as their their Lord and their King. So it's not fanciful to meet Jesus in in Isaiah. Uh, He himself tells us that uh, those Old Testament scriptures are constantly pointing towards him. And of course the New Testament church, uh, in Acts and in the epistles in the New Testament, foresaw Um, or rather saw the fulfilment of what Jesus had done as uh, being what the Old Testament prophets were pointing to. Now, Isaiah is a long book. Um, Someone has said it's an elephant of a book. It's got 66 chapters, and they're not short chapters. But they say you can eat an elephant if you eat it slice by slice. So what we're going to do is just take four slices of Isaiah, And uh, try and understand the book better uh, through uh, what we've got uh, in front of us. And in order to do that, as I say, I'd like to begin by providing a sort of map, a sense of the structure to guide us. Because that's what Isaiah provides for us. So turn back with me to chapter 1 and the very first verse of the book. And you'll see there that it's a sort of um, dating uh, verse it's, it's saying the time that Isaiah prophesied it was in the days of four kings, Isaiah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah and he began in the year of King Uzziah's death. We read that in chapter six and we know that that was the year 740 before Christ. So here we are 740 before Christ and Isaiah is prophesying for about 50 plus years into the 690s, 680s. Hezekiah died in 686. So this prophet is sort of 50 years of ministry based in Jerusalem, which was the uh, capital city of the southern kingdom. And during his lifetime and during his ministry, the northern kingdom, the 10 tribes that separated from the south, you remember after Solomon, the 10 tribes were actually overcome by the Assyrians, who were the big power of the day, and the northern kingdom virtually disappeared. But the southern kingdom continued all the way through Isaiah's life, and indeed for another hundred years or so after his life, until it too was conquered, not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians, who followed on as the next great empire system. And so both of these sections of the people of God came under judgment from God, because they were so faithless to him, because they set up their own alternative religion. And therefore, Isaiah is prophesying in a time when there is a massive decline from the true worship of God amongst the people who say that they are the people of God. And that's why the devastating analysis of the first um, three verses, really, well, verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1, is important for us to grasp, because this is the context into which Isaiah is speaking. He summons the whole creation, heavens and earth, in verse 2, to listen, because the Lord has a message. He's spoken. And what he is saying is that the unthinkable has happened. Children, he says, have a look at verse 2, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now the children are obviously the people of Israel uh, whom God brought to birth as a nation and whom he has nurtured and nourished down the ages. And these children have rebelled against him. Uh, Just look at what that rebellion looks like in verse 4 because we'll find echoes of this in our hearts as well of course. We too are sinful people. Notice how he describes them as sinful, verse 4, laden with iniquity Offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, sin, iniquity, evil, corruption. Now, why are they in this state? Why are they uh, so um, divorced from uh, a real faith and witness uh, and a real trust in God? Well, well, look at the verbs in verse four. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So they have broken the covenant promises. They have not regarded God's holy character with awe and reverence and worship. they turned their backs on him. We know that they were worshipping pagan idols and they didn't really want to know. That's why he compares them unfavourably with an ox and a donkey in verse 3. He says the ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master's crib. In other words, these animals, these brute beasts, they know where they're fed and they know who gives them the things that sustains their life. But Israel seems to have forgotten this. They don't know. My people don't understand. Now, of course, we are not in the same situation as they were. We are um, many, many Um, centuries, millennia later in human history. But of course the Bible is always exposing the, the problem of human nature, the problem of the sinful human heart. And therefore we will always find that there is a tendency within us to drift away from God. It may not be as dramatic as forsaking and despising him, I trust it isn't. But we all do find that sort of tendency to put God on one side and to Uh, Look to him when we're in special situations of need, but sometimes we forget, we don't understand how utterly dependent upon God we really are for our spiritual lives and for our well-being. So what they're doing, and uh, we won't look at chapter 1 in detail, but what they're doing is going through all the externals of religion, they're still turning up at the temple, they're still offering the sacrifices, they're still having their worship services, but their hearts are far from God. It's spiritual hypocrisy. They go through all the motions that the law required, but they do not really love the Lord. And therefore, God sends the prophet Isaiah to wake them up and to call them to turn again. Uh, if you look at chapter 1, verse 13, he says to them, bring no more vain offerings. Your incense, this is the worship of the temple, is an abomination to me. I cannot endure in iniquity and solemn assembly. In other words, you gather together as the people of God, but your hearts are so given to iniquity, and I cannot endure this hypocrisy. And therefore, it's summed up uh, in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore, she who was full of justice. So here's the devastating analysis that I've called it in the notes. And as we move to 21 to 26 as part of our background you'll see that this is a distinct unit in which there is one dominating question. If you look at verse 21, you'll see it talks about the faithful city, and then the unit ends in verse 26 with the same phrase, the last part of verse 26, the faithful city. But in between, we see that the faithful city has become a faithless city. It's become, in terms of verse 21, a prostitute. The people of God who once were committed to righteousness now are committed to evil and corruption. So verse 22, your silvers become dross. What does he mean? Verse 23, your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts. They don't bring justice. They don't care for the widow. And so the Lord says, I am going to get relief from my enemies. Verse 24. And most Jews would have thought, well that's wonderful, he's going to defeat all the pagan nations that arranged against us. But look at what God says in verse 25, I will turn my hand against you. So he's saying to the people of God, the faithless city that's compromised with sin, that's happy with idolatry, that has a sort of hypocritical outward godliness but no inward love for God. He's saying, you've made yourself my enemy. Uh, But he's not going to destroy them. There's going to be a process by which judgment comes. He talks about smelting away the dross, removing the alloy. Those are images, of course, of making pure metal uh, rather than alloyed metal. And he's saying, I'm going to purify you, and I will do that through my judgments. And then afterwards look at the end of verse 26, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So what is the agenda of the book? Well, I would want to suggest to you that it's that question I put in the notes there. How is the faithless city, Jerusalem initially, but Jerusalem stands, of course, for the people of God in any generation, how is it to become the city that God wants it to be? How is it to become a faithful city? How is it to be called back from its double-mindedness and hypocrisy. Put it in our lives, how are we going to keep going as Christians? How are we going to be strengthened and developing in our Christian experience over the years, rather than drifting away and then coming back and being sort of, well, a little bit flaky as Christians? How are we going to be strong? How are we going to be really committed to God? How are we going to be part of the faithful city? That's the agenda for the book. How can there be this permanent change? By the time you get to the end of the book, you find that this is what God has done. Just let's flip over to 65. It's always good in Bible books to top and tail them. See what's at the beginning and see what's at the end, because it gives you a clue as to what comes in between. And in chapter 65, look at what God is saying in verse 17. five seventeen. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, there's the faithless city, to be a joy and her people a gladness. She's a faithful city. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And uh, those other references help us to see the same thing happening across the page there in chapter 66, verse 10. Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast, that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. so this is total change. now God is uh, is blessing this city it's a peaceful city it's a glorious city. it's a city that brings joy even to the heart of God and um, the divine solution comes to its climax just on the last page there right at the end of the book 66 verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath, that's obviously an image of constant, eternal worship, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So the problem that's posed at the beginning of the book is solved at the end of the book, and the question is then, how did it happen? And the answer is through the Messiah. And Isaiah is the great distinctive prophet who foretells the coming of the Lord's anointed. Messiah simply means, well, Messiah is the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek Christos, Christ, the anointed one. God is going to send his anointed one who will bring about this transformation from faithlessness to faithfulness. From the rotten corruption of the old Jerusalem, the sinful human heart, to the new Jerusalem, in which the glory of God dwells, the transformed individual believer, the transformed church, the new city of God. And he does it through the Messiah, and the book has three portraits of the Messiah. The first is Emmanuel, the second is the suffering servant, and the third is the anointed conqueror. And that is a way of understanding how the book of Isaiah fits together. Immanuel, you know that uh, word from the Christmas readings, Immanuel, God with us. So the first picture of the Messiah is God coming into our world, being with us, taking on our humanity. It's a picture of the incarnation of Jesus. And that fills really the pictures of chapters 1 to 39. 1 to 39 is all about the Emmanuel figure. But then the second picture, which we'll look at tomorrow morning, is the suffering servant. That's chapters 40 to 55. And the third picture, which we won't have time to look at over this weekend, but which is a glorious combination, is the picture of the anointed conqueror who comes as the king to bring in his full kingdom. So 1 to 39, roughly, is Emmanuel. 40 to 55 is the suffering servant and 56 to 66 is the anointed conqueror. Three different portraits of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world. And that is, of course, how God always purposed to change the course of human history. Um, The idea of the anointed one goes right back to uh, someone like Saul or David in the early kingship that the uh, Israelites knew. When David the shepherd boy, for example, was chosen by God to become the king of Israel, he became the Lord's anointed. Oil was poured on him by the prophet Samuel as a sign that God had set him apart and equipped him to do this work. It's divine power at work in uh, that man's life. Uh, And the kings that followed him were, many of them, quite disappointing. Ahaz particularly, one of the kings in whose reign uh, Isaiah prophesied, was really a disaster as a king. But some of them were nearer to the uh, kingship of David and to the picture of the Lord's anointed Hezekiah, whom we'll meet in the course of the book, Uh, was uh, one of the kings who was much more dependent on God and much more prepared to worship God and to trust in him. But no human king could solve the situation. Because every human king is flawed, every human king uh, shares the weakness and the sinfulness um, of the whole human race. And therefore there needed to be a new anointed one, a, uh, a Messiah who came, as the very representative of God and as we meet him in many pictures in Isaiah we see just how glorious Jesus is how exactly he meets our sinful human predicament and how full of grace and truth he is and what it will mean to um, us in our lives if we, are, if we can recognise that we can be in union with him we can be connected to him his life can be in us that's how the transforming God, uh, power of God works uh, in uh, our lives and in our world today. So Isaiah is, part, is, is drawing then this very big picture um, from uh, the weakness and failure of human rebellion against God to the ultimate conclusion in the everlasting kingdom, in the eternal city. And in between we see that he is prophesying about This figure, this Messiah, this Christos, who will come and who will achieve what no other human being can achieve. So the more we see Jesus in Isaiah, the more we're led to worship him. Uh, That's why this is not a sort of irrelevant history lesson this weekend. It actually uplifts the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And 700 years before he comes, God inspires his prophet to teach and to write and to Instruct the people about him. And if we can see that more clearly, then it will enable us to realize, perhaps freshly, just how wonderful it is that Jesus came. Just what a great work he has done on our behalf. Just what a transforming power of God it is that Christ is at work in our situation today. And that will make all the difference as we seek to live for him in a world, as I said earlier which wants to squeeze us into its mould. So let's spend the rest of our time in Isaiah chapter 6, which is the narrative of Isaiah's call to prophesy. In the year that King Uzziah died, chapter 6, verse 1, I saw the Lord. Now, this was a remarkable year, because Uzziah, while 68 years old, he had been king since he was 16 So throughout his lifetime, he'd been the king. But eight years before he died, he'd committed a great sin. He wasn't content just to be the king. He wanted to be the priest as well. Now, in the Bible, there's only one person who can be the king and the priest, and he's the Messiah. But this Old Testament king had ambitions to be the priest, to offer the sacrifices and the incense in the temple of God. And he went into the temple and sort of tried to take it over. And the priests, their great credit, resisted him because God had said the office of king should be separate from that of priest. And he actually was struck with leprosy as a judgment against him. And for the last eight years of his life, he couldn't function as the king. He was shut away as a leper. His son Jotham became what we would call the regent, the king in his place, and eventually, of course, succeeded him when Uzziah died. But as the Book of Chronicles says, it was his pride that led to his downfall. And taking, uh, trying to take an office that wasn't his was a disastrous um, uh, move that uh, Uzziah made. And so we get the end here of the period in which, in a way, the king has symbolized what the nation is like. He doesn't seem to think that he needs to follow God's commands any longer. They've become rather self-confident. They think they can do it all. And in the year that King Uzziah died, it is a strategic moment because it's been a very long reign. Everything is going to change as a result of that. And the pride and the disobedience of the king, which is mirrored in the nation now um, challenges uh, the people. How are they going to go in the future, in this new reign, in the development uh, of um, the years that are coming? I guess the question was, has God finished with Israel? Have they sinned away the last vestiges of his grace and his mercy? But you know that uh, the New Testament says that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And that's the story here really of the grace of God overcoming the down drag of human sin. Um, It was the closing of one era but it's the opening of another era. I saw the Lord, Isaiah says. And God lays hold now of Isaiah as his representative man to be the agent of his purposes. He's going to be a prophet who will reveal God's mind, speak God's word. But... He's also an individual who will show in his life what God is willing to do for the nation. See, I think we should put Uzziah and Isaiah as contrasts. Uzziah is a picture of where the nation's gone wrong. Proud, selfish, disobedient. Isaiah is a man who's about to be transformed by God and who will show what the nation can be if they will allow God to work in them. Now, the nation in the old covenant is the people of God, the people of Israel brought into relationship with him. The equivalent in the new covenant is the church, the people of God brought into relationship with him. So whenever we're thinking about Israel as the nation, they are the covenant people. We should think about ourselves as the covenant people. We are the people of God who have been brought into relationship with him. And now God is going to do something new in a representative man which can be worked out in the lives of any of his people. And that's a glorious thing to think about. Uh, One of the Christian writers on this, Dr. Charles Inwood, puts it like this. When God is going to do something wonderful, he begins with a difficulty. And if he is going to do something very wonderful, he begins with an impossibility. And I like that because it reminds us, you see, not to put God in our back pockets and think we can sort of sew him up and we know all about him. When he's going to do something very wonderful, it's often into the impossible that he steps. Look at the mess that Jerusalem was. Look at how far they'd fallen short of God's standards, how committed to idolatry they were. There's lots about that in this book. But God takes that impossibility and he does something new by his own sovereign power. So what was it that made Isaiah the man of God for that generation? Three things I want to suggest. Firstly, he had a new vision of the Holy One. This is the first four verses of chapter 6. It is a vision. It's as though he sees the true majesty and glory of the Almighty Lord reigning in splendour, And the keynote word, you can't miss it, is the word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Now, holiness is the most godly word of the Old Testament. It expresses the godness of God. Holiness is about moral righteousness, but it's more than that. It's about God being infinitely greater than we can imagine, infinitely more pure, more righteous, more glorious than our feeble human minds can take in. It is the most divine word of all that God is separate, enthroned, high and exalted, sovereign over everything that he's made. And even the outskirts of his robe, verse 1 says, fill the temple. It's as though God couldn't be contained in any sort of human construction. He is utterly other than us. You see that holiness in the seraphim in verse 2. That literally means the burning ones. They wait on God like pillars of fire. They're, in the vision, Isaiah sees them with blinding, intense brightness. But they veil their faces in the presence of the divine majesty. Because that glory is even greater than theirs. So you have this picture of these winged creatures, these shining angels, if you like, the burning ones. Each has six wings. With two he covers his face because he cannot look on the glory of God. With two he covers his feet, which is a sign of his willingness to do God's work. And with two he flew. He goes on God's errands. He does that which God commands him to do. They are his ministers of righteousness and they are in themselves, full of the divine glory and splendour. And their song expresses and explains what is happening. Holy, verse 3, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now Hebrew is a plain language and um, they uh, express the superlative form by repetition. So, in English, we take the adjective holy and we have a comparative form, holier, and we have the superlative form, holiest. But Hebrew doesn't do that. Hebrew says holy, 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 that's the comparative form. Holy, 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 that's the superlative form. So, when they're crying holy, 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 it's not a Trinitarian reference, though of course it will be true that it's Trinitarian, but that's not the point. The point is that this is a superlative. There is no one, nothing, anything, holy like God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. It's revealed constantly to everyone in the magnificence of his creation. So from the mighty oceans to those tiny snowflakes that are falling outside... Uh, From the ant to the elephant, the whole earth is full of the glory of this holy, utterly godly God. And every inch of planet earth is his, and every created being on planet earth is testimony to his righteousness and his power and his compassion. Now, no wonder the temple shakes at this revelation of God, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. I saw the Lord. And he says in verse five, um, My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now of course he didn't see God face to face, he saw the outskirts of his robe, he saw a manifestation of his glory, but that was enough for Isaiah. And so I suppose it challenges us this way. Have we ever really begun to understand the true nature of God? Well, I've never had a vision like that, and perhaps you haven't either. But in the New Testament, in John chapter 12, we're told that what Isaiah was writing about was the glory of Jesus. Just flip over with me for a moment, because I think it's such an important link. John chapter 12 in the New Testament and verse 41. Because here we can see how this suddenly becomes much more than just a historical record. It speaks to us about Christ and his significance in our lives today. So, John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, Let's just pick it up from earlier in the passage so that you can get the flow. Verse 37 Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, he'd manifested his glory. They still didn't believe in him. So that the word might be spoken by Isaiah, Lord, who has believed what they heard. Um, And again, verse 40, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they couldn't see. Isaiah said these things, verse 41, because he saw his glory, that is the glory of Jesus, and spoke of him. And then Jesus' own words, just a bit lower down in verse 45, where he says, Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. When a man looks at me, sees the one who sent me. So when a man believes in me, he doesn't believe in me only, Jesus says. Uh, He believes in the one who sent me. And therefore, our vision of God is our encounter with the Lord Jesus. Because when he came into the world, nobody had seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son of the Father. Nobody had really seen God face to face, that is. In mean, Isaiah saw a manifestation of God. Moses saw the glory of God. But in Jesus, we see God face to face. When he came into the world, he manifested the glory of the Father, full of grace, And truth, and the God who commanded his light to shine in the darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, have you ever had a vision of Jesus like that? Yes, Jesus is our friend. Yes, Jesus is our older brother. Yes, Jesus is the one who has great compassion on us, but he is also the holy one. He is also high and lifted up he is exalted at the right hand of the father he is utterly righteous utterly pure utterly um, committed to his uh, own character of purity and goodness and so we need don't we to have fresh encounters of the Lord Jesus we so easily it's so easy for us to accommodate him to our way of thinking And yet when we see him stilling the storm, raising the dead, uh, suffering on the cross, rising victorious himself on Easter Day, we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if we're ever going to be of any use to God, we need to keep having before us this vision of Christ. Christ who has made us his people, a new vision of the Holy One. That's what started Isaiah on his ministry but of course as soon as you see Jesus you begin to see yourself differently so secondly he had a new realism about sin and that is his immediate response to the vision he says in verse 5 woe is me for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King the Lord of hosts now Isaiah wasn't a profligate man he was an upright sincere man of God but all he can do in the light of God's holiness is to cry the leper's cry Isaiah's cry unclean, unclean you see the nearer we get to God the more we realise the depravity of our own hearts in fact it's almost a a sort of barometer of our spiritual condition we recognise just how far short we fall One of the old hymns says, and those who fain would serve you best are conscious most of wrong within. And God can do very little with us until we realise our lostness, the ruin of our lives before him. There's no self-justification here by Isaiah, just a conviction that when he sees the glory of God, he realises just how far short he falls. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the spiritual bankrupts, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the way into that kingdom and the way into God's blessing in our lives is to just recognise how unworthy of it we are, how often we fail, constantly every day, to be at the cross, constantly finding his forgiveness. Because sin is so ingrained within us. Now, that's not a negative thing. That's what produces positive spiritual energy. But we do need that conviction, I'm the sinner for whom Christ died. And conviction leads to confession. For Isaiah the prophet, his lips are a specific area of need. Uh, And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And uh, sin, obviously, lies hidden in our speech because it lies hidden in our hearts. And as Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the lips speak. Now, speech sins are frequently our defilement too, aren't they? I mean, which of us could say our lips are not unclean? Think of the white lies as we call them, the gossip, the bitterness, the sarcasm, the exaggeration, the destructive criticism. All these things, they're there. In our hearts, And that's why we need to constantly come back to God to ask again for his forgiveness. And the lovely thing is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from every kind of wrong. And so the third thing is the cleansing that comes. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, look, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's interesting, isn't it, that the cleansing comes from the place of sacrifice, the altar. It's not cleansing by fire. It's cleansing from the sacrificial offering that's been made on the altar. That's what atones for sin. And that's applied now to Isaiah. And, of course, it's applied to us through the altar of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. God reconciles man to himself. That too is his glory. And that wooden cross outside the city wall on a Friday afternoon as he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's how realistic we need to be about our sin and how we need constantly uh, to ask God to apply that sacrifice of Jesus to every area of our life. See, he peels back the layers gradually, doesn't he? I mean, if when we became Christians we saw the depths of sin, it would probably paralyze us, really. But I don't know if you find this, I find this, that all the time as you go on in the Christian life, he peels back another layer, he peels back another layer, shows you things that are buried in the cellar that you had no idea were there. Wrong attitudes, wrong motives, wrong priorities, all sorts of ways. And that doesn't make you sort of morose and negative, You thank God for that and you bring it to the cross and you leave it with the Lord Jesus and you know he's forgiven you, the sins that you know and the sins that you don't know. Nothing is unforgiven if we bring it to him. And so has this new realism, if we're going to be useful to God, if our lives are really going to count for him, we need that vision of the Holy One, that realism about our sin. And then perhaps lastly, we're in a position for a new focus of service. So, as Isaiah is cleansed, he hears the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And he now, as a cleansed messenger, can say, Here am I, send me. And the man who was silenced because of his unclean lips is now cleared to be a spokesman for God. He's able to speak. The Lord said to him, Go and say to this people... So here is the response of a forgiven sinner. I think it's wonderful that the work of God is that he prompts us to want to be his servants. You know, you don't make people into Christian servants by pressurising them and whipping up responses and twisting their arms. When you see the Lord, when you trust Christ as your Redeemer, you long to serve him. Grace... Produces gratitude. What can I do, Lord? Here am I. Could it be me? And God commissions him. Go. And I guess he was thrilled and excited by that, as we are, as we take the gospel to people and as we seek to live Christian lives in our workplace that will really communicate Jesus to people just by our love and compassion and care for them. But it wasn't really that exciting because the willing commitment was followed by a prediction of a disappointing outcome keep on hearing don't understand keep on seeing but don't perceive you sometimes feel like that in your witness you keep on trying you keep on praying you say a word here you invite to that activity there and people don't hear they don't respond they don't want to they don't know well but you don't give up go and tell this people It's not dependent upon the response. It's dependent upon the commissioning from God. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all the nations. And look, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. But for Isaiah, well, it was, I guess, a call to be a failure in human terms. Because God says they're going to reject the message. And um, although he preached it with clarity and truth... Uh, the sophisticated society of Jerusalem, we read later in the book, criticised him for being childish, simple, too, too easy to understand. Uh, they sort of said, it's as though you're teaching us nursery rhymes. Isaiah longed to see his nation turn from its pride and rebellion, but during his life, there was no great revival. But what God did do was gather a, a community of believers, They're called the remnant in the book of Isaiah. Those who are left over, who will hear, and who will believe. Is that why he had the vision? Well, he hoped it was that there would be a great change during his lifetime, because that's, I think, why he says in verse 11, How long, O Lord? But in his lifetime, it was going to be a message of the coming judgment of God at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and ultimately, verse 12, the exile, when the Lord removed people far and far away. Well, we are not responsible for the outcome. We are responsible for the obedience. That says, Lord, here am I, use me. Now, we don't have to be great preachers and we don't have to be great speakers of the gospel. But wouldn't it be a good thing every time you arrive at your workplace just to say quietly to God when you settle down in your seat? Or You know, when when the first messages come through on the screen, Lord, here am I, send me. You sent me to this place. This is where you want me to be. My life can count for you here. And that is something that God, I think, would uh, endorse and would um, respond to as we pray. Lord, use me today. Give me an opportunity today just to show something of your glory and of your love. And whatever the outcome, do it. Because that's being faithful to him. He'll look after the outcome. He knows what he's doing in that. We don't produce the outcome. We don't make people Christians. But we do sow the seed. And we do seek to glorify God. And our lives do count wherever they are. And God knows what he's going to do long term. So my last thought as we close is that wonderful last sentence. I mean, verse 13 would be the most devastating verse, wouldn't it? The Lord's removing people in verse 12. The forsaken places are in the midst of the land. The exiles happen. The whole place has been devastated. And then, verse uh, 13 says, and though a tenth remain, that's going to be also devastated. It's, it's a terrible picture. But look, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. In other words, even after all these judgments, there is seed, the holy seed, the seed of the holy God. And the seed is the idea that out of this stump there will come a branch, there will come a trunk, there will come a new tree. That is what God is going to do, a root out of a dry ground, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, as we shall see tomorrow. And as we Uh, think about that then recognise that this is no problem to God he's got it sorted he knows what he's going to do and he's going to send his Messiah as he did the first time and he's going to send his Messiah as he will the second time to bring in his ultimate kingdom so two last thoughts firstly the darkest night often heralds the brightest dawn it's often when we're at our lowest and our most undone and our most helpless overwhelmed by our sin and our failure that God breaks in to our lives in a new way take it to the Lord when Isaiah was hopeless hope wasn't finished there's always more grace always more grace so take it to the Lord and though we're not Isaiah and we're not given Isaiah's task and we don't live in Isaiah's times let's have Isaiah's conviction that we are humble before God and that the privilege is to seek to live our lives every day in His strength, dependent on His mercy and accessing His resources as we seek to live for Him. When we see His holiness and our failure, there's no room for pride, but there is room for a life lived every day at the cross, every day amazed and totally dependent on the grace of the Holy One of Israel, who is our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that there is always more grace, and that whatever our situation is this morning, whether we feel downcast and discouraged, or whether we are full of uh, thanksgiving for all your mercies and your constant presence with us, wherever we are across that spectrum, thank you that, Your grace is more than sufficient for all our need. And we pray that over this weekend that grace may flow into our lives in fresh ways, that you'll help us to see how wonderful you are, the transformation that you can bring about, the glory of your person in the Lord Jesus, full of grace and truth. We pray that our hearts may be drawn after him so that we may not just be Christians in word only, but in deed and in truth, growing into the likeness of our Saviour, and useful in your mighty hand to accomplish your purpose which is unique in each of our lives but which all together and every one of us can bring greater glory to your name and to your uh, kingdom. So hear us Lord in these things we pray for your name's sake.